Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? So my name is Darren. Uh, for those of you who are new, uh, I typically am the guy who stood here in Ron's place leading uh, the worship music for you. Uh, so thanks, Ron, for filling in so that I could uh, bring the message today while Drew is off somewhere I forget where. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, before we get started, or as we get started, uh, I wanted to take some time this morning and just reflect about where we've been in our sermon series. So over this, uh, we're kind of in the middle of a year and a half long journey from Genesis to Revelation, and the New Hope is the first sermon series within the New Testament. So up until September of this year, we've been going through the Old Testament, going all the way uh, from Genesis up until the time of exile, and then the Israelites return, and then there's this 400 years of silence. Uh, and then Jesus shows up out of that silence, <coughs> preaching this different new message and new kingdom, new gospel that was kind of unexpected. But, but Jesus is the hope. And so we've been putting Jesus, or one, one of the things we've been doing in the series is putting Jesus into all of these Old Testament stories and themes. And how does he replay some of these stories and how does he fulfill some of those stories? So the very first message that, that Drew preached was about how Jesus was king. In Matthew 1 and Luke 3, there are genealogies of Jesus that show how Jesus is in the line of King David, the most famous king from the Old Testament. Um, in addition to that, foreign dignitaries in the wise men come and worship Jesus and give him kingly gifts. And the local ruler, Herod, is, is nervous about Jesus, this person being born within this prophecy, what, like what's going on, and he tries to kill Jesus. But they escape to Egypt and then come out of Egypt, which should sound familiar, because the Israelites did that. As they passed through the Red Sea in the Exodus, Jesus passed through the Jordan River in his baptism. Are you still with me? There's a lot more to go. And after he was baptized, uh, both Israel and Jesus went into the wilderness. Israel for 40, days, or 40 years, Jesus for 40 days. There's links there. And also, like Adam was tested in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, Jesus was tested in the wilderness, and he passed the test where Adam had failed the test. Then... Jesus forms this new group of people that eventually becomes 12 disciples, like the Israelites were a group of 12 tribes. After that, they go up on Mount Sinai. Moses receives the law from God to give to this newly formed people. Jesus goes up on a mount to preach what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Ron covered that two, two, day, two weeks ago. And he gives this new law to his new people. And then last week, Drew talked from, Jew, uh, from John chapter 4 where Jesus finally reveals all of who he is to this woman at the well, that he is the Messiah, that he is here, the one who, to, to redeem Israel, to restore right relationships, and bring the entire world into the people of God, not just the Jewish people. So that's where we've been. Did you get all that? If any of you are note takers, uh, you might have to go back and listen to, to that, or listen to the podcast, because we, we uh, have reflected on that quite a bit. So this sermon today... Um, we're going to look at another story and see how Jesus is presented as another one of these archetypes from the Old Testament. And, and specifically, the stories we're looking at are from Matthew chapter 8. Feel free to turn there in your Bibles. We're going to look at two stories. The first one begins in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 8. And this is where he calms the storm. So there's this, this raging storm, and Jesus is in, and his disciples are in a boat, and the disciples are freaked out. They wake Jesus up, and Jesus calms the wind and the waves. The second story is right after that. There's a link between them, which I'm going to try and explain to you. Um, and if this is the one where Jesus heals two demon-possessed men. And in the other gospel accounts, they retell the same story, um, and they give some more details. This is the demon that's called Legion. Okay, that, that they, he encounters. Matthew is kind of sparse on the details. 
for his own reasons. But because these stories, both of them have connections, both of them are actually dealing with the supernatural realm, I wanted to lean into Halloween a little bit. Because Halloween's right around the corner. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but Halloween has grown a lot. Have you noticed this? So I come from Kansas, and the last time I went trick-or-treating was in fifth grade, because once I got past that, I was too old. Like, that was a kid's thing, uh, and, and I didn't really do that at all. But over the, the years, I've noticed that there's a lot more lawn decorations. Um, those those blow-up air things make it really easy to decorate. Uh, Creed and I went on a walk around the neighborhood, and we saw people have, they've got tombstones with funny names on them, and like, you know, little skeleton hands reaching out. And I... I don't remember seeing those in the past. So maybe, I just think there's, there's more, right? And here's some proof that Halloween is on the rise. Uh, here's some stats from the National Retail Federation. In 2005, about 17 years ago, the spending was about $3 billion on Halloween overall. This year, the projected stats have more than tripled. We're at $10.6 billion. So taking into account uh, inflation, that's still a big increase. And there's something behind Halloween that our culture is getting more and more interested in. And it's not this, this cute kid dressing up thing getting candy, although I think every kid wants candy. I think there's a darker side to Halloween, that there's this undercurrent in our culture that has brought the popularity of Halloween up. And here's what I mean. Our culture, and I, I maybe include myself in this because I'm that age, but young millennials like myself and then Generation Z who are people like around 25 to 18 years old or so, there's a lot of young people, uh, and I've heard, heard these stories, they're interested in spirituality in general. And the reason for that is, is that they've grown up with parents, and some of you are in this generation, um, and, and I'm not saying that all of you like ascribe to this, but in general, our society viewed materialism quite highly. And so the American dream was, was what? Get, get a house, Two cars, two-car garage, a dog, a white picket fence, or all those classic things. That's about accumulating stuff and getting, getting wealth for, for yourself. But people my age, young, young millennials and younger, have grown up and seen how that's unfulfilling. That material, materialism is not the end-all, be-all. And so the culture in, in general has shifted to think about, uh, instead of like spending your money on things that you hold with your hands, We've started to spend our money now on experiences with your mind. So it's experiential, it's not material. The interest in the supernatural realm has grown because of that cultural shift among the young people in our culture. And here's the thing. For most American Christians, there's an untapped power and untapped potential in the spiritual realm. I believe that we need to meet our culture in this, because Christians have been sitting here with the answer about the spiritual realm for a long time, for ages, for millennia. The Bible says, of course there are, there are spirits out there, and of course there, there is a supernatural realm, but it warns us against communicating with those spirits that are not of God. And this Halloween, there are people who will try to tap into those spirits that are not of God. And talking to some passed away ancestor, in worshiping, some people even go as far as to try and uh, connect with Satan. Very, very dark, dark stuff. Because those spirits are all too eager to show up and show you what they can do. Because they have a limited amount of power where if you are not interested in, in the true God of the universe, 
whatever this spiritual type thing might be, they can show up and they can show you what they can do. But today, as we look at these stories, we're going to see what Jesus can do and what the reality is behind this entire spiritual realm. So let's go ahead and jump in and see what these stories have to say about all this stuff. So here is Matthew chapter 8. I'll read the first story, starting in verse 23. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up, and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So some context about just the Sea of Galilee, which is where they're sailing. Um, the entire Jordan River Valley, including the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, is all below sea level. So right there, it already creates some interesting like, topography conditions, weather conditions, just because it's, it's like that. But also, um, next to the Sea of Galilee are some pretty steep cliffs with a lot of deep trenches and deep ravines. And sometimes you don't even see a storm coming, but sometimes it doesn't even have to be clouds on the horizon. It just all of a sudden that wind pops up and creates huge waves. Because uh, if wind gets in those deep trenches, it can be amplified. And it blows across the sea and just creates massive waves. Now, the people in the boat with Jesus, if you read earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, it's those four fishermen, plus probably some other disciples, but they're fishermen who have lived on the Sea of Galilee. And they're freaked out. Like, if anyone knows the conditions of the Sea of Galilee, it should be them. And this is apparently a really intense storm. And so they're, they're thinking that they're going to die. And Jesus is sleeping. By the way, another connection to the Old Testament. Where have you heard that there's a massive storm and there's some guy sleeping on the boat? Jonah, thank you. Some of you are like, yeah, it's Jonah. So just a fun connection there. That was for free. But what happens is that the, the disciples wake him up. And Jesus uses a specific word. He rebukes, or Matthew writes, that Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves. That's a unique word because elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus rebukes demons. There's something supernatural behind this storm. For Jesus to use that word, or for Matthew to use that word to rebuke, there is something supernatural about this storm that Jesus has power over because after this it becomes completely calm. Absolutely, completely calm. And the disciples were, were amazed. They were incredulous. What kind of man is this, they ask. This is the first time that Jesus had shown this type of power. Earlier, he had done miracles of, of healing and those sorts of things, maybe turning water into wine from, from the book of John. And those kinds of things weren't as special as commanding a storm to stop. That's some incredible power. And they hadn't seen that yet. And Jesus, it's not like he wrote a manifesto of like, this is what I'm about, and this and this and this. Instead, he just starts to live his life and call people to follow him as he progressively reveals more and more about himself. Think about the Gospel of John. The first miracle is turning water into wine. The last one is raising Lazarus from the dead. Like, turning water into wine, I can get on board with that. Raising a guy from the dead, whoa. That's pretty intense. So there's this progressive revelation but let's see what happens in the next story, because there's something unique, again, the connection between these. Not only is there spiritual type of language between both these stories, but there's something else that the demons say here. So here's the next story, starting in verse 28. 
When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Do you have questions? I have questions. (laughs) What's going on here? Uh, The first thing I want to point out is that the demons answer the question the disciples asked in the previous story. What kind of man is this, the men ask? Son of God, the demons answer. The spiritual realm knows who Jesus is. And like the disciples are freaked out at the supernatural activity in this wind and the waves, the demons are freaked out that the one who has power over us is here. Have you come to torture us before before the appointed time? So that appointed time, I think it's one of two things. Either it's on the cross and resurrection when Jesus went to battle against the evil forces of death and evil, and of course he defeated them, because it took the power, all the power that evil could muster to kill the Son of God, and then he just casually walks out of the tomb three days later, risen from the dead in a new resurrected body. So it could be that, or it could be in our future, um, when Jesus will return to this earth to completely push away all the evil that we are currently experiencing. So we're, we're living in this in-between time where the demons know that there's a battle coming, but we know the battle has been won. Jesus won the battle on the cross, and the rest of, of this evil that we experience in this life, it's just like evil being, Satan being an a, a aggressive toddler, just trying to wreak havoc. He has no power, really other than the power that we give to him. More on that uh, later. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go ahead and read on. Verse 30. Here's something to deal with with pigs. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Now, a lot of us probably have questions about, like, why the pigs? What's going on with that? Why did the demons go into the pigs? Why did the pigs go get drowned and all that kind of stuff? Um, What I'll say about it is, is two things. One... The Jewish view of pigs is extremely, like, not, not favorable. They hated pigs. If you know about the Old Testament law, um, pigs were an unclean animal. They could not have any bacon or, or pork or anything like that. If Drew up here, he'd make a barbecue joke right about now. And so a Jewish view of, of pigs was, was awful. So they would say, good riddance to those awful, evil animals. Those people shouldn't have even been raising pigs. They're so disgusting. And I don't know if we have a, a cultural equivalent in that. Um, I think the closest we can get, or at least I can get for me, I'm not sure how it is for you, um, is eating a dog, which I know other cultures do. And so uh, you reacted against that, but there are other cultures that, that do that. Just like we don't have a problem with eating pigs, but the Jews would say, oh, how could you? So I, th- I think there's another level of Jews between pigs, between us and, and eating dogs and stuff. Um, but that's, that's kind of how, how to think about that. So a Jewish person wouldn't, wouldn't even have a question. It's like, good riddance, get those pigs out of this world. I've heard some other people say, and this is just, it's interesting, I don't know what I think about it yet. Um, some people say that demons can't swim. And so that's why the pigs rush down the bank. And it has to do with, with a, a theology of holy water, like a demon can't stand holy water. 
right, in, in some kind of exorcism type, type event. Um, I don't know. That seems like the Wicked Witch of the West to me a little bit. Uh, and I have to, I have to uh, tell you that joke didn't come from me. Uh, that came from a Bible study uh, on Thursday when we talked about this. So, yeah, uh, I, I don't know what, what, about, what is about that. But here's, l- let's focus on this one. Um, what, how do you feel about the pigs losing their life? And like, Jesus, how, why could you do that? What about the economic impact of these farmers? Like, they lost all of that, of that power, or all, all of all that finances. Other stories uh, from Luke and, and um, Mark say that this herd was as large as 2,000. So it's a big impact. And this is the same choice that the people have in this passage. Notice that the, the report from those tending the pigs, they reported all this, this is verse 33, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. The townspeople get the news of what happened to the men, and what happened to the pigs? What is the response of the townspeople? When confronted with the power of Jesus over this demonic possession, this spiritual supernatural realm, what is their response? They ask him to leave. Get out. Are you more concerned with the pigs and the economic loss? Or are you praising God because there are two men that just got healed out of demonic possession? When you're confronted with this issue, do you lift up this, this animal that was considered unclean in their culture at, at the expense of the men, or do you praise God because two men are healed and restored to who they should be in Christ? And these two men, in the other accounts, they, co- they come to Jesus and, and they ask, like, Jesus, can we follow you? And Jesus says, no, I think you'll actually be more useful if you go around the, the town giving your testimony. Tell people what happened here today. And there was a massive following that started in this region because of their testimony. That this is a glorious thing because Jesus has power over the entire creation and we have a choice. When, he, when we're confronted by that power, what are we going to choose? Jesus was with God in the beginning. He created. Now he's here on earth in, in, in human form. He still has power over the wind and the waves, over all of this, this spiritual realm kind of thing. He has power over everything. He is the creator God that we see in Genesis 1. And John, the Gospel of John chapter 1 talks about how Jesus was, was the Word. He was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. And through him, everything, that has, everything was made through him. Jesus is God. He, he was with the Father in Genesis 1 and 2, and he created everything. He has power over all of it. And these demons know exactly who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has power over them. Notice that it's only once the demons get permission from Jesus that they, that they go. Like, here, if you're going to cast us out, uh, send us into the pigs. Please, please, please. And Jesus says, go. And at that moment is the only time that they can do that. When you're in the presence of God who has this power, the spiritual world has to ask for permission. And they freaked out. Once, Jesus saw, once they saw Jesus coming. Now here's another question. I tend to ask questions then try to answer them. Um, but here's a big question where we're going to lean into a little bit more, especially around supernatural activity, paranormal kind of stuff. How did these men come to be demon-possessed? It's probably a question a lot of us have. And I think uh, the relationship between the supernatural world and how it interacts with us is really an interesting thing to, to discuss and, and see what the Bible has to say. 
And the truth is that humans have, given a certain amount, have been given a certain amount of power by God to allow evil to inflict us if we desire it to. Remember that this coming, this coming week, people are going to desire to tap into things that they may or may not know are actually evil. And, and dear Christian, we, we have the answer for this. But the other part of things is that things can happen to us that are just a part of living in a broken and fallen world that create wounds inside of us where evil has a chance to latch on and wreak havoc in our lives without us really knowing about it. Some of you might be wondering if there's a connection between demon possession and mental health. Um, there, there is a connection, but I want to be upfront with you that I, I did have a conversation with a, a Christian counselor about this issue, um, but, but I'm gonna leave that to the side because I'm not trained in the mental health realm, that there are things that are related, but I'm not, well, we're not gonna observe that because that is something important that we as Christians need to, to know about, um, but I don't, so I'm not gonna, gonna try, try and answer those things for you. But what I do want to talk about with you is what, what I've experienced pastorally. In, um, b- like, a- as before we would send someone to a Christian counselor to start to dig through some things, well, what, what does this look like? And that's what I, I want to explain. And the language that I like to use about this it centers around things like this, where we give evil permission to latch on and get a, get a foothold or a stronghold in our own lives that then we try to hide, whether consciously or subconsciously, and then other things pile on top of that that become symptoms of a deep, deep hurting and a deep, deep wound that sometimes we, we try to protect. So there's this wound, evil gets into it through the lies that we believe. That's the crucial phrase. What lies do you believe that allows evil to take root inside of you? because that's what Jesus wants to try and heal. And I'm gonna tell us a story about someone I know who has experienced this type of thing. When he was young, um, he was walking home from school with, with another friend, and his friend asked him, hey, are you adopted? Because you're kinda ugly and your siblings are more attractive than you. And here's the thing, kids say really bad stuff, right? We have to train that out of them. For example, th- this is brand new. Yesterday, Evangeline, uh, my, my almost two-year-old daughter, we tend to play soccer in our backyard. Well, she decided that daddy wasn't going to play soccer anymore. So she picks up, she says, no, picks up the ball and just runs away from me. And I'm like, what are you doing, girl? Like, well, this is new. Uh, if you have any tips, please uh, let me know about how to deal with that. <laughs> that there's something that, that kids just say that we, we have to help them learn how to be a good human. And that's what happened to, to my friend. Someone t- told him he was ugly, and he, and he went home and said, Dad, am I adopted? And he said, no, my son, you, you, you're my flesh and blood. I love you. And yet, because he's so young, that created this wound that, that he started to believe from a very young age. And that wound being open led to other things. For example, he started to think, especially in his middle school years, that he couldn't be loved. If I am ugly, then no one is going to love me. Later on, that turned into searching out and, and reaching out for other things to feel loved. Enter pornography. And pornography is something that might give you a hit where you feel love in an instant, but ultimately over time it leaves you empty, a completely empty shell of who you once were. And once he didn't find true, truth in, true love in that, then depression set in because there was nothing else that he could turn to to be loved. And it's not as though he realized this thing that happened to him as a kid, 
Because we don't always have those memories, or sometimes we, we even like, start to suppress those a little bit. And so after 40 years, my friend was praying with someone. He, he, he was trying to dig through, um, through something with another, another pastor, uh, possibly counselor. But, but the Holy Spirit, being the ultimate counselor that he is, reached down through the symptoms of depression, the symptom of pornography, through the symptom of feeling like he's unloved, and revealed the moment that that lie, that he was ugly, took root. And it was once he was able to identify that, that there was incredible repentance. Did it hurt? Oh, yeah. Because he had been putting a Band-Aid over these symptoms for so many years, where what Jesus wanted to do was reach down and stitch up that wound that's deep, deep inside. And that's what happened in the moment when the Holy Spirit came in. And my friends, this, this is what healing and redemption and true repentance really is. Sometimes a pastor will, will stand up here and, and call out sin, like, stop sinning, repent, turn to Jesus, stop getting angry, stop looking at pornography, stop all these things. But if you know that these things are a sin, and yet you keep turning to them again and again and again, you're putting a band-aid over something that needs to be stitched. It's possible that there's something deep within us. If we have these symptomatic sins we can't get rid of, there's something really deep. And will it hurt if you go ask the Holy Spirit and go ask someone to help you identify it? It certainly will. But, but my friend is living in an incredible amount of freedom, incredible uh, amounts of, uh, of redemption and restoration as he's, his, he started to lead other people through these experiences as well. And that's why I'm here. I had a, a similar experience where the Holy Spirit dug through some of my junk in my life, ripped it out, and then replaced it with him. Because we want to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be possessed by evil. Call it evil spirits, call it demon possession, whatever you want. We do not want evil in our lives, and Jesus can rip that out. So I'll share one more story with you. Uh, One of my friends who started coming to our life group had some experiences with fringe Christian groups. Um, Not a whole lot of what we call orthodox beliefs, which is what we try to do here at Forefront. And we were in my basement once, um, us two and another friend, we were playing ping pong back and forth, and, and he started to vent about some of his struggles in his life. And as he continued to, to talk and, and try to uh, you know, explain some of these things or just vent, I, I all of a sudden got this thought. I was like, wait a second. Ha, has he ever really sat down and like prayed to Jesus, said the words, Jesus, I, I want you to actually come into my life and and be my savior, and bring me out of this anger and, and sadness that I'm experiencing. And I asked him, like, hey, have you ever done this? Because he had been in these Christian cringe groups, or Christian, whoa, Christian fringe, sorry, those two words blended together for a minute. Christian fringe groups that really had never said, hey, a Christian life begins like this. Just, just telling God and telling others that you and there's power in those words when we speak them. So I asked him if he'd done that, and he said, no, actually, I haven't. And I said, you want to? He's like, yeah, let's do it. I'll try anything. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Uh, and so, so we sat down. He sat on, on my couch in my basement. I remember it very vividly, and my friend uh, knelt beside him. And we started to pray. And, and, and as we were asking, as I was asking him questions, trying to listen to God about how to lead him through this, there was a point where he wanted to confess something to God. And it was that he had a certain relationship with his earthly father that prevented him from believing a heavenly father could love him. And, and we had discerned that about his life 
um, in other previous meetings before that. But when it came time for him to say those words in a prayer, in the presence of the Holy Spirit to Jesus, he literally, physically could not say it. It's as though his brain was sending signals to his mouth to form the words, but the air was getting caught before it ever got to his vocal cords. That there was something that, that prevented him physically. I heard it. It was almost like his tongue just went to the top of his mouth and he couldn't say it. And so in that moment, I was like, uh, this is new for me, but we're just going to pray that the Holy Spirit would remove it. And so I prayed in the, in the name of Jesus that whatever is preventing him from saying this confession would leave. And before I put the period on that sentence, his confession flowed completely and utterly. And to this day, he has lived a, just a transformed life, giving glory to God, and, and it's, it's incredible. But in that moment, again, Call it demon possession. Call it spiritual evil. Whatever you want to call it, there was something, some wound that had opened in him from his relationship with his early father that prevented him from thinking a heavenly father could love him. So when you're presented with this choice, with this power of God, what is your response? Because God, God is good. He is the ultimate good. He is the creator God. He has power over everything, and he can handle everything that you have. Any deep wound that you may not even know is there, he has the power to heal. The amazing part of the gospel is that Jesus has defeated that death, defeated that evil, so that we can experience freedom and redemption. So has something come into your mind as I've been talking, where there, yeah, I, I see that there's this, there's this thing that I always do, or there's something holding me back from really experiencing the presence of God and and, and the, the true life that I know is available to me, but I just can't quite seem to get there. And if you've constantly been trying to give that over to God, maybe it's time to bring someone else into the equation, someone who has experienced these things, someone who can work with you and the Holy Spirit to identify some kind of deep, deep wound that's within you. Because Jesus has that power. He's defeated that. And we're living in this duality where, yes, evil is defeated, but, but there's still skirmishes, just weak toddler tantrums of the evil one who's going to try to bring us to evil until the very end. And we're living and hoping and praying for that day to come soon. But the reality is it might still be some time before Jesus returns to set everything right. So maybe today is the day where you take a step forward and you actually go talk to someone about this. We always, this is why we offer a prayer team. There, there are always people after the sermon, during the last songs, who are in these wings who love to pray with you. This is why we sing songs and give time to respond, to think, so that as you continue to listen to the Holy Spirit, that he might reveal something like this to you. My friends, grace is available. Jesus did it on the cross. This isn't a law type of thing where, where you have to go and, and do something. Instead, grace is available for you in the Holy Spirit through praying with someone else, and you just have to run headlong and go find it and get it and accept it and bring it into your own life. It will be difficult. It will be tough for a moment because bringing darkness into light is always, always tough. But my friends, don't walk out of this building. Don't care about what anyone else thinks. If you want freedom, you go and get it because God is good. He's the creator God. He has power over all of it. And he can handle whatever you have. Let's pray.